Amen. What a great song to sing as we continue our series, our 10-week series, 10 weeks or so, uh, dealing with the promise of the gospel, the gospel promise throughout Scripture, God's plan of redemption, the good news to bring us into relationship again with, with Him in relationship with us through faith in His Son, Jesus. And so we're seeing Christ throughout all of Scripture. This morning, we're looking at 2 Samuel 7. That's a passage we'll be looking at a, a good portion of our time together this morning. So if you begin turning to 2 Samuel 7, we're going to read some of that together here this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to be looking at uh, various portions of this, this passage. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the first, uh, read the first 17 verses together this morning. And so if you're able to, if you'd stand in honor of God as we read his word together. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. Seven. Uh, we're looking at the story of God's uh, God's Davidic covenant, the covenant that God makes with David. We're looking at uh, verse one of Second Samuel seven, and this is uh, after uh, David has just uh, completed bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. It says this in verse one. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not Depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word, strengthen us, instruct us. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> and Father, we would ask that you would shape our hearts by this. We pray that 
as we turn our attention more fully to the teaching of your word, that our hearts would be receptive to it, that our, our minds would be engaged. Uh, give us grace. Help me to speak clearly what you would have me to, to speak. We pray for those who are hurting this morning, that you would comfort them, that your words would, would be a balm to them, to their hearts, and an aid to them as, as they seek to follow you in the midst of, of pain or suffering. We pray for those who are enjoying you and delighting in you. We pray that they would continue to delight this morning as we look at these words. We pray for our, our hearts as we think about partaking in the Lord's, your supper, remembering Christ's work on the cross and celebrating it as, as, a, as a fellowship and help us to have hearts that are rightly prepared to partake of that. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. It's hard, I think, you would agree with this, it's hard to overestimate how influential leaders are in our lives, how, how they, they shape the decisions that we make, they help direct the, the course of our lives in large and, and small ways, right? When I was in junior high, we had a cross-country and track coach. He was a, a very gifted coach. He had the ability to, to take these kids who had never run a mile before in their lives and, and, and teach them how to, to run. And I really admired how strategic he was. And he thought you know, deeply about stride and, 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 and breathing and, and how to, to pace yourself. And I was just really in awe of this guy. He was also, he was a young guy, but, but very stern. I can't remember him ever cracking a joke or even a smile. I can't even remember him complimenting one of the runners, saying good job or, or anything like that. And I can remember being just desperate for some sort of compliment from this guy and just hoping that, that maybe he would, would say something positive about me. Like I, I knew I wasn't going to be the fastest runner in the state or, or even on our team on any given day, but but I wanted him to, to know that I was a hard worker, and I was, I was really desperate for his approval. Now, Coach had also told us that, that he believed his strategy of, of running track, I didn't always understand the things that he said, but I believed them. He told us that he believed the most important runners on a track team were the 400-meter runners, the guys who ran one time around the, the track. I was not a 400-meter runner, I was a 1,600-meter runner or a 3,200-meter runner. I ran around and around and around the track. But if Coach said that the most important runners on the team were the 400-meter runners, I wanted to be a 400-meter runner. And so I, I tried and I tried and I tried to be a 400-meter. I was desperate for Coach to say something positive about me. I don't know why, looking back on it, but I was, I was really desperate for that. Never made it while he was coach at our junior high. And he went on and coached at a, another school, and, and I still, though, wanted to be, I, I don't know, I wanted to be a 400-meter runner because coach said the most important runners were 400-meter runners. And finally, finally, one week, the new coach came to me the next season. He said, okay, Bennett, you're going to run the 400-meter this week. I know you've been wanting to do that. Your times are, are, are okay enough for you to do that. And I said, yes, I'm going to be a 400-meter runner. And I came to that track meet excited about being a 400-meter runner, and who should I see at the track meet but my old coach. Coach and I 
see each other, and I walk up to him and say, hey, coach, how you doing? And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, ask me, ask me, ask me when I'm right. And coach looks at me, and Bennett, no smile still, Bennett, how you doing? Good, coach, I'm doing well. What are you running, Bennett? Yes, coach, I'm running the 400-meter relay. He looks at me, looks up and down, he goes, Bennett, you're no 400-meter runner. Crushed, crushed. I felt about that big. And that night, I can remember running the 400-meter race and feeling like a fraud. I'm not a 400-meter runner. I'm not a 400-meter runner. Now, why does, does one person have that kind of influence in our lives? Uh, leaders are, are those, for whatever reason, have been placed in our lives and, and can, make us do, can make us strive to do amazing things and can affect our lives in profound ways. And I can remember all sorts of leaders who have inspired me to do just, just things that I didn't even think I was going to be capable of doing. And you can probably think of examples in your life of, of leaders who took you and, and were able to mold you and shape you and, and cause you to do things you didn't know you'd be able to do. You can also probably think of some negative examples of leaders. Leaders who were, I want to use the word nicely, incompetent, you know, that you, you thought, okay, th- this person doesn't even know where they're leading me. They're, they're aimless. And, or maybe you had leaders in your life who were kind of overbearing, leaders who were oppressive, who, who took joy from your life in their leadership style. And as I think about my failures as a leader, as I think about other leaders in my life who haven't been ideals, I think about good leaders in my life who made mistakes, but in the net were positive influences in my life. I think about all those leaders, and, and I realize that the truth of what we looked at last week. God has really designed us to be led. You and I were made to be ruled by and submit to a king. And I think human leaders and, and their failings should cause our hearts to, to yearn even more strongly for, for the king of kings to rule over us. You and I were made to be ruled by and submit to the king of kings. And last week we looked at some very negative examples of leadership. We saw some vacuums of leadership and we saw what it looks like to, to not be led in the way that God has designed us to be led as we looked at the book of Judges and saw judge after judge who led the people but, but didn't lead the people the way they needed to be led and, and had these, these failings in their leadership. And we saw the, the people rudderless and more, you know, kind of each person doing what's right in their own eyes. We saw some negative examples last week of people who aren't in submission to God, who aren't being ruled by and submitting to the king of kings. This week, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 7. And as we look at 2 Samuel 7, we go, we're going to see the ideal king. And I want us to walk through this chapter together, and we're going to walk through the chapter, and we're going to see some characteristics of this king, and we're going to see the characteristics of this king as he establishes a kingdom. And as he establishes this kingdom, what I want us to do is I want us to look at the kingdom that he's establishing. I want us to look at the king who's establishing this kingdom, and then I want to put ourselves underneath that king and say, okay, what does it look like for you and I to be led by this king. If this king is establishing this type of a kingdom and you and I were made to be ruled by and submit to this type of king, what effect does that have on our lives right now? That's 
what I'd like for us to accomplish. We're going to be looking at four characteristics of this king who establishes this kingdom, and we're going to see some things that help us understand how we live in light of the kingship of the king of kings. Before we get into all that, though, let's give us a little bit of a context. Uh, We were in the book of of Judges last week, and after the book of Judges, you have the book of Ruth, and then we come to the book of 1 Samuel. In fact, turn over to 1 Samuel with me, if you would. Remember, we saw the book of Judges uh, covers events that take place from about 1350 to 1050, roughly B.C., Now, as we come to the book of 1 Samuel, we're looking at events that take place about 1050 B.C. Samuel is is born, he's born before 1050 B.C., but he's uh, he's born here in in 1 Samuel chapter 1. His uh, mother rejoices, Hannah rejoices in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We have the story of of, uh, uh, Eli and and his um, leadership in the land of Israel. And then we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 with me, if you would. This occurs about uh, 1040 B.C. And it says, uh, Samuel has become old. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8, about 1040 B.C. And he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and he talks about his sons, and there were these, these judges. And then it says in verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So what happens here in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is the people are demanding a king from Samuel, and the problem isn't that they want a king. In fact, uh, let me just real quickly, let me describe the king that Jesus, or that God uh, says that they are to have. In Deuteronomy 17, there's some laws concerning Israel's kings, and uh, verse 18 says that the king shall sit on the throne of the kingdom and write for himself a book of a copy of this law, of of, of the the Mosaic law approved by the Levitical priests, and he shall write up this, this own copy. The king shall write up his own copy of the law. And this, this copy of the law, Moses says, shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in the kingdom his kingdom, he and his children Israel. So as the people come to Samuel here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the problem isn't that they want a king. The problem is that they want a king, again verse 5 says, to judge us like all the nations. They don't want a king that's in keeping with the type of king that's described in Deuteronomy 17 they want a king that rules over them like all the other nations have. They're, they're looking to the other nations for their understanding of what a leader should look like. It's a problem, right? Instead of looking to God's word, 
and seeing the type of shepherding king, remember the Deuteronomy 17 says that this king that God wants to establish won't be above his brothers, but he'll be a king that looks to God's law and his word and understands what God wants the people to do, and, and that's the type of king that God envisions. And the people come to Samuel and say, no, we want a king that's like all the other nations have. We want a king that's going to rule over us, a, a king that we look to, and he looks down on us and tells us what to do, and it's a mighty guy. That's the type of king we want. And so, God gives it to him, the person of Saul, and Saul becomes king in about 1040 B.C. A few years later, David is born. David's born about 1035 B.C. or so. And King Saul, as you know, as you read through the story in 1 Samuel, you can see that King Saul becomes further and further removed from what God desires the king to be, and then we have the emergence of David as king, and David becomes king around 1,000 B.C., and the events that take place here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 have occurred about eight years or so after David has become king, so we're looking about 992 B.C. or so as we come to 2 Samuel 7. And David, here in 2 Samuel 7, let's go and look at the text, and let's, let's walk through what takes place here and, and help us understand some characteristics of the king of kings. It says that uh, the king is living in his house that, and the Lord's given him rest from all the enemies. And as David is experiencing this rest, he looks at Nathan the prophet and he says, you know what, uh, I'm here in this house and, and uh, the ark of the Lord is, is living in a, a tent, it's dwelling in a tent and that doesn't seem right to me. And Nathan says, well, you know what, uh, do whatever your heart desires to do. It sounds like your heart is in the right place, and so if you want to build a, a house for the Lord, a temple, go for it. Then he leaves David, and that same night, the text tells us, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan and says, not so fast. He says, look, I, I've never asked, God says to Nathan, to David through Nathan, look, I've never asked for a house. I never commanded that the judges build me a house. And so, this isn't the task I want David to do. It's kind of an interesting exchange here. You, you think about all the, the amazing things that David was able to do, and what comes to this thing that he wants to do, God says, no, you can't do this. And David is going to respond rightly, we'll see in a moment. But listen to what God goes on and tells David through the prophet Nathan. He says, look, you're not going to be the guy to build me the house. And then he says in verse 8, let's remember where you've come from, David. Let's look at your past. I took you by my sovereign hand. I, I took you from the pasture. You were a shepherd. You were following a bunch of sheep. And I made you king, prince over my people Israel. And again, he's looking at David's past. He says, and I've been with you wherever you went. I've, I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And now here's what I'm going to do for you in the future. In the past, I, I took you from being a shepherd to a prince, a king. Now, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make you a, a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. In verse 10, I'm going to, when it comes to Israel, I'm going to appoint a place for them. I'm going to plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly and from the, t from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, now look at those verses. Do you see anything particularly new 
in those verses. As he describes what he's going to do for the people of Israel, does that seem like, think about all the things we've talked about in this, this series we've been in so far, about what he tells Adam, Abraham, Moses. Does this seem all that new? It, it shouldn't. It shouldn't, right? I mean, what is he talking about doing? He's talking about giving the, the people a place and, and planting them and giving them rest and security. And, and really, since the fall, since Genesis chapter 3, that's what he's been promising. He tells Adam and, and Eve, look, you, you're, you're going to suffer the consequences of the fall, but I'm going to give you relief. I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you deliverance from sin's curse. And then he comes to Abraham. He says, look, you have all these generations from Adam to Abraham where people are, are longing from rest, are, are longing for rest, are longing for deliverance from the curse. And he comes to Abraham. And he tells Abraham, look, I'm going to give you guys a place, a location where you experience my, my rest. And now he comes to David. And, he's, and well, he tells the same thing to Moses, right? I'm going to bring you into promised land. I'm going to give you a, a place where there's rest. You're going to no longer feel the effects of sin's curse. And now we come to David, and it's, it's the same thing. This isn't something new. This isn't something that has not been talked about before. There's nothing new about the promises here. It's, it's, it's a fulfillment of what is promised previously. But here's where the new stuff kicks in. Look at verse 12. In verses 12 through 17, 12 through 16, we have what we call the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God makes with David. And in this covenant, we find out some new things about how God is going to keep his promises. He's made these promises. He said, this is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to give you land. Here's I'm going to give you peace. You're going to be, you know, he tells Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. Now, here in verses 12 through 17, he tells David how this is going to take place. And as we look at how this is going to take place, how this rest is going to be achieved, notice the importance of the king. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers, when you kick it, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will raise up your offspring after you. And he will come from your body. It's going to be your son, your descendant, and I will establish his kingdom. He's going to be the one who builds the house. He shall build a, a house for my name, and I'm going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So in other words, there's going to be this eternal kingdom. There's going to be, first of all, David, you need to know that, that your lineage is going to continue forever. Your family is going to continue forever. There's also going to be a kingdom that continues forever. So there's, your house is going to continue forever. This kingdom is going to continue forever. And what's more, the kingship in your family is going to continue forever. And this, this kingdom that God is promising to David is a continuation. It's not something brand new. It's a continuation of the kingdom that he's been promising his people through the gospel since Adam. That brings us, let me just take a break here for just a moment, and, and that brings us to the first characteristic of the king that I want us to consider. Characteristic number one, the king establishes a promised kingdom. The king establishes a promised kingdom. 
Now, the kingship has been described in some general terms. We saw it in Deuteronomy 17 that I mentioned earlier. We've seen before in Genesis 49, for example, that the king is going to come from Judah. So we've, we've seen some allusions to it. But, but now we understand the importance of the king in establishing this kingdom. As David would say in 2 Samuel 23.5, these are his last words. He would say, uh, he says, Does not my house stand with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for he will not cause, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. The kingship is not new, but, but now we understand how crucial this king is to establishing the promised kingdom. The king is essential to establishing the promised kingdom. In fact, the promises of the kingdom, I want you to catch this, the promises of the kingdom cannot be realized apart from the king. Do you see why that's an important thing? A person in Israel can't say, I would like to please receive all the promises of Abraham, but I'll, I'll pass on the king. You know the thing you promised in the Garden of Eden as you told the serpent his curse and you promised this promised seed, I would like that, but no king for me. Or uh, you know what you told Moses about, about um, the, this promised prophet and the things that are going to take place in the promised land? Yes, I would like all the things of the promised land, but I'll skip the king. It's the king who establishes a promised kingdom. You say, well, okay, now, how does that little tidbit of information affect me personally. So often, as Christians, we want the promises of God, the promises of the kingdom, without the king. We want the promises of the kingdom without submitting ourselves to the king, to King Jesus. Let me give you a couple examples. I hear people talk sometimes... Quote uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven right Jeremiah twenty nine eleven they 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 say you know this is the this is the promise that I'm claiming twenty nine eleven where where God says I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope okay and says that you know I'm claiming Jeremiah twenty nine eleven I know that God has great plans for me and I I want to tell people okay well first of all that wasn't delivered directly to you. Uh, that message was delivered to people who were in exile, people who had experienced some in incredible suffering. And there's other promises in Jeremiah 29 as well. For example, just a few verses later, there's this promise, I'm going to send on them sword, famine, and pestilence. Okay, So, you know, why do you get to claim the, the blessing and not the, the pestilence, right? Well, what's, what's the difference? What's the, what's the key to receiving the, the, the promises of Jeremiah 29.11? Well, it's, it's receiving the king. Or think about Philippians, right? I'm sure you've often uh, heard people as they're talking about difficult circumstances in their life or things that they're trying to accomplish. They say, well, uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the promise I'm claiming. Christians say, that. I'm, I'm, I'm claiming that promise. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, what happens right before Philippians 4.13? There's Philippians 4.12. I Paul says, before 4.13, he says, I know how to be brought low. 
I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What is Philippians 4.13 saying? Philippians 4.13 is saying, as I follow the king, as I follow the king, whatever difficult circumstances I face as I follow the king, I can do it because Christ is going to enable me to follow him. And instead, we make Philippians 4.13 and so many promises in the Bible, we make them this. I'm going to pursue what I want, and as I pursue what I want, I believe that God is going to come along and do what I want to get me there. I want this this new job, and so I'm claiming Philippians 4.13, I can get that job because Christ will enable me to get it. I want this, this certain type of marriage relationship, and I know that this is what I want, and God must want what I want, and so I'm claiming the promises of God. Look, the king establishes a promised kingdom, but catch this. There are no promises. There are no promises that God gives you. There are absolutely no promises that God gives you apart from you submitting to his king. Well, there's a promise of wrath, but I don't think you want to claim that promise, right? There are no promises that the king gives to you apart from submission to the king. And so do not please, I want to say this nicely, don't lull yourself into this this false understanding of the promises of God without submission to the king that God gives us. The king establishes a promised kingdom. Here's the, let's, let's look on, let's continue looking at here at 2 Samuel 7. So first of all, the king establishes a promised kingdom Let's listen more about this, this, this covenant, this promised king. Uh, verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, uh, God is still speaking to David through Nathan the prophet. He's talking about this king. I will be to him a father, and, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me your throne shall be established forever, okay? Notice, first of all here, that he's, he's saying, look, that there's going to be this unique relationship between me and, and your son. It's going to be this father-son relationship, and, and we think that this applies not just to David's immediate son, Solomon, but there's, there's an allusion here, according to Hebrews 1.5, of the relationship between God and, and Jesus, a, a father-son, God the father, God the son relationship. When we say that someone is a father to a son, we're not always just talking about a, a genetic relationship. We're also talking about a relationship of, of characteristics. Whenever I went back to Texas a, a few years ago and was, went to my uh, parents' church, the church I grew up in, I was meeting some people I'd never met before, and it was my dad was standing here, and there was me and my, my two brothers, and, and someone came up to us, and I, I was being introduced to them, and they looked at me, and they looked at my dad, and they looked at my brothers and said, so, uh, Daniel, um, you must have really gotten excited about adoption ministry because you were adopted. I said, well, uh, I said, no. And they said, are you sure? And I said, I don't know, Dad. Um, you know, I don't know for sure. Um, but if you, you know, at first glance, as they looked at me and they looked at my, my siblings uh, and my dad, they said, I don't, we don't see that that relationship, but, but as a person gets to know me, and they get to know my dad, and they get to know my brothers, they, they see the, the common characteristics, I hope, that, that we have, and the, the things that I really admire about my dad, I hope are true of me. 
when I look at my children, I, I see characteristics of myself or of Whitney and my, my kids. I, I look at my sons and I see, man, those are some good-looking kids. I, I see myself in that. And, you know, when I, I see my daughters and I see the, the way they respond to things, I see myself in that. When, when we see, <clears throat> when, when uh, God is saying to David that his son is going to, to be like a, a father-son relationship with, with Yahweh God, he's going back to Deuteronomy 17. The, the same things that are true of, of God and his passions are going to be the passions of this king. The second thing that I want you to see about this promised king is, is that this king establishes an eternal kingdom. As this king shares the characteristics of God the Father, it says that he's going to establish this kingdom. And over and over again in the, in the text, it talks about how eternal it is. It's in the last verse, verse 16, uh, this kingdom will be made sure forever before me. The throne shall be established forever. There's an eternal lineage that David is going to have. There's this eternal kingdom, and then there's an eternal king that's going to reign over the kingdom that's part of David's house. Now, how do you do that? How do you have a king that, or a kingly line that endures forever? One way is by just having lots of children, right? That's not a very sure way. The other way is by having a, a king that, or a queen that lives forever. We just saw this last week. Prince Charles is beginning to collect pension, and he hasn't even begun to do the job that he was born to do yet. And he probably feels like his mom is living forever. But uh, as, you, as you think about how you continue a kingly lineage, you, you have a king that can live forever, and, and he can have this eternal kingdom. And the kingdom that God promises here is a kingdom that's going to have no end. This kingdom that God promises continues and continues and continues and continues forever and ever. It's a remarkable king who can establish a kingdom like this. A kingdom of perfect righteousness and holiness that endures. The sad thing for you and I is that even though we have the opportunity to participate in a kingdom like this, so often we are investing our resources in things that aren't going to last forever. How does it affect us practically to have a king who's establishing an eternal kingdom? Uh, my uh, wife and I are playing this, this game right now, not right this second, I hope, uh, on, our, uh, on, our, on our phones. There's this, we don't like, I don't like a lot of games on phones, but there's this game that's really gotten me hooked. It's called Scramble. You ever played Scramble? It's kind of like uh, that game Boggle, where there's a bunch of letters, there's like a 16 letters, a four by four, and, and you, you try to find all these words, and the more words you find, depending on what letters you use, you get more, more points. Um, my wife is beating me far too often for my enjoyment. And there are times when I, I wake up in the morning. This is ridiculous, right? I wake up in the morning and I think, I've got to beat her today. Today, I've got to beat her. I, I need to get the points necessary. Lord, today, if I could just accomplish one thing, let me win this, this scramble game. The games sometimes last a couple days as you play it with another person here. And, and, and you know what you get when you, when you win scramble? You know what your big prize is? Three digital coins. A lot of my emotional energy in life this last week or so has been spent 
striving for three digital coins. That doesn't seem that bright to me, right? What's your scramble? <laughs> what is it that, that consumes some of your emotional time, your emotional effort, your, your physical time, your physical effort? What, what digital coins are you striving for? Maybe there's a, the, the scramble in your life that is, uh, you really want, there, there's a hobby you have. You're, you're collecting something. You're collecting, I don't even want to say it because I don't want to insult you, buttons. Does anyone actually collect buttons? If you do, I apologize. I play scramble, so we're even. Uh, you're collecting buttons, and, and there's these buttons, and at the end of your life, you're going to have more buttons than everybody else. That's your, that's your scramble. Or maybe it's something, maybe your physical fitness is your scramble, and, and you are consumed with trying to, to make your body a, a temple, but it's become like this idolatrous place of worship, and, and that's your scramble. You're, that's what you're striving for. Or maybe it's some things that don't seem that trivial. If you asked other people about the kingdom that you're trying to build, they say, yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and so your kingdom is investments, and, and you're pursuing this investment strategy because that's your scramble, and that's your kingdom, and you're hoping that, that in your life you have this certain number of not digital coins, but like real coins. And, and, and so that's, that's what you're striving for. That's, that's your kingdom. And the, the bad news is it's all going to go away, right? This last week, in addition to playing Scramble, we also uh, went to this website, mint.com. I don't know if you've ever done that, but it's like this budgeting, total money thing that, that people kind of go to, to to find out how they're doing financially. And we downloaded a lot of, you know, it takes every scrap of information you have and kind of compiles it. And and uh, as, as I looked at that, I, I realized, you know, um, it's not that different from scramble, right? <laughs> scramble is a bunch of digital coins on a computer screen. This is a bunch of digital numbers on a computer screen that someday are all going to be gone. The king establishes an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will not end. And the wise thing for you and I to do is to submit ourselves to the king who's going to be reigning over that eternal kingdom. Whatever your kingdom is, whatever your scramble game is, it's all going to be done away with. This kingdom is going to be the kingdom that lasts. The wise person participates in it. Well, let's look at how David responds just real quickly here in 2 Samuel 7. We're going to look at the last two characteristics in David's response. And in 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 18, we see David's response, and, and it's a response of humility. He says, well, well, who am I? Who am I? I mean, God said that I was a shepherd, and, and he took me to make a prince. That's right. Who am I, O Lord? And what's my house that you've brought me thus far? Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Here's a third characteristic that I, that I want you to see. The king is establishing a God-exalting kingdom. David rightly recognizes as he, as he contemplates this kingdom that God is establishing, he rightly responds that, that this, is, this is a kingdom that he should respond with, with worship to. As he contemplates what God has done in his life, it doesn't cause him to, to become puffed up and, and arrogant. Yeah, I could see why you've chosen me to become the king that helps establish this kingly line. I, I understand it, God. I get it. You and I are on the same wavelength because we both think I'm pretty special. No, he understands that 
that God's choice of him is not about him. He says, you've done this. This is amazing. Look at, look at, verse, uh, look at verses 20 and 21. What else can I say, David says? You know me. I don't need, to, I don't need to, to justify myself. You know me. You know my unworthiness. It's because of your promise and according to all your own heart that you've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. In other words, you've done this amazing thing. You've promised this amazing kingdom. I could not, no matter how hard I worked, establish a kingdom like this. But to you, David says, it's no big deal. You can make and establish kingdoms all you want. Whenever my kids come to me and they ask me, hey, Dad, can we, can we watch a movie tomorrow or can we, can we play this game after supper or something? I can't even say yes to that sometimes. I'm, well, maybe. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I can't even promise something that takes place 15 minutes from now. But God can promise into eternity. And David's recognizing, look, it's no big deal for you to promise this. But you've done all this. You've done all this so that I would know about it. You've done all this greatness so that I would know about your greatness. And so what's the only logical response? It's to acknowledge your greatness. Verse 22, therefore, you're great, O Lord God. There's none like you. There is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. The king is establishing a God-exalting kingdom. You know, if you're taking notes, it might be helpful. Just list. Just just write down. You know, what are... If you were going to be asked, what are the three things in your life that God has blessed you with? Maybe something physical, something relational. What are the things that God has done in your life? And as you look at that list, ask yourself, how am I using these blessings of God to exalt his name? God hasn't given you a family just so that you could have this family. God hasn't given you good health just so that you could have good health. That would be a very temporary kingdom mindset. God hasn't financially blessed you so that you could have financial blessings. You're to enjoy those blessings, but those blessings are to be like a an engine that, that, that propels your worship of God, that as God establishes great things in your life, things that you don't deserve, haven't earned, they're, they're to propel you to deeper worship. The king establishes a God-exalting kingdom, and David recognizes it. last characteristic of this kingdom, the last thing I want you to see, the king establishes a participatory kingdom. Look at what David says about the people of Israel. Verse 23, and and who's like your people Israel? The one nation on earth to whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its God. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. It goes on, verse 28, And now, O Lord God, you are God. Your words are true, and you've promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore... May it please you to bless the house of your servants so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. 
With your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. What I believe happens here is based upon what David says here, and based upon what we read in the New Testament, I believe that that God has, has sovereignly chosen to work through the people of Israel in a very special way. And, and by Israel, I mean ethnic Israel. I believe that the, the ethnic people of Israel, God has, has chosen to bless in a very special way. And, and I believe, based on Romans 11, that in the future we're going to see a, a continued work of God among the ethnic people of Israel. And yet at the same time, according to Romans 11, according to Galatians, you and I have become participants in God's promises to Israel. We are experiencing the blessings now as, as one people of God, the, the blessings that he promised to Israel. As David recognizes what his response to God is, he also understands that the people of Israel are to respond this way, and there's to be this, this, this corporate worship of God as, as God works in and through his people. You and I were made to be ruled by and submit to the King of Kings. As I think about my own uh, leadership in life, I think of, uh, frankly, I think of some times of, of failure. There's times, as I think about you know, parenting my kids, serving my wife, serving the church, I, I realize, boy, my, my leadership it didn't reflect the servant leadership of, of Christ in the way that, that I, wish, I wished it, it would have. But I do hope, as I lead, as I serve, the biblical form of, of leadership, I hope what it does is, is give people a desire to be led by and submit to this king. And as they think about the type of kingdom that he is establishing, to place their, themselves in that kingdom, to be excited about the promises of God fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, to be excited about being able to build into an eternal kingdom, to be excited that the, the king is in his graciousness is, is establishing a kingdom that exalts God that we get to participate in. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and for the new covenant that he has established a new covenant that is in keeping with your promises from of old, and we pray that we'd be faithful as we pursue our relationship with your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.